Chapter 1, Part 2 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Of Property in General. Part 2. The only question remaining is how this property became actually vested. Of what is it that gave a man an exclusive right to retain in a permanent manner that specific land which before belonged generally to everybody, but particularly to nobody? And, as we before observed, that occupancy gave the right to the temporary use of the soil, so it is agreed upon all hands that occupancy gave also the original right to the permanent property in the substance of the earth itself, which excludes everyone else but the owner from the use of it. There is indeed some difference among the writers on natural law concerning the reason why occupancy should convey this right and invest one with this absolute property. Grotius and Pufendorf insisting that this right of occupancy is founded upon a tacit and implied assent of all mankind, that the first occupant shall become the owner. And Barbarak and Titius, Mr. Locke and others, holding that there is no such implied assent, neither is it necessary that there should be. For the very act of occupancy alone being a degree of bodily labor, is from a principle of nature justice without any consent or compact sufficient of itself to gain a title, a dispute that favors too much of nice and scholastic refinement. However, both sides agree in this, that occupancy is the thing by which the title was in fact originally gained. Every man seizing to his own continued use such spots of ground as he found most agreeable to his own conscience, provided he found them unoccupied by anyone else. Property, both in lands and movables, being thus originally acquired by the first taker, which taking amounts to a declaration that he intends to appropriate the thing to his own use, it remains in him by the principles of universal law till such time as he does some other act which shows an intention to abandon it. For then it becomes, naturally speaking, publici juris once more, and is liable again to be appropriated by the next occupant. So if one is possessed of a jewel, and casts it into the sea or a public highway, this is such an express dereliction that a property will be vested in the first fortunate finder that will seize it to his own use. But if he hides it privately in the earth, or other secret place, and it is discovered, the finder requires no property therein. For the owner hath not by this act declared any intention to abandon it, but rather the contrary. And if he loses or drops it by accident, it cannot be collected from thence, that he designed to quit the possession. And therefore, in such case, the property still remains in the loser who may claim it again of the finder. And this, we may remember, is the doctrine of the law of England with relation to treasure trove. 
But this method of one man's abandoning his property and another's seizing the vacant possession, however well-founded in theory, could not long subsist in fact. It was calculated merely for the rudiments of civil society and necessarily ceased among the complicated interests and artificial refinements of polite and established governments. In these it was found that what became inconvenient or useless to one man was highly convenient and useful to another, who was ready to give in exchange for it some equivalent that was equally desirable to the former proprietor. Thus mutual convenience introduced commercial traffic and the reciprocal transfer of property by sale, grant, or conveyance, which may be considered either as a continuance of the original possession which the first occupant had, or as an abandoning of the thing by the present owner and an immediate successive occupancy of the same by the new proprietor. The voluntary dereliction of the owner and delivering the possession to another individual amount to a transfer of the property. The proprietor declaring his intention no longer to occupy the thing himself, but that his own right of occupancy shall be vested in the new acquirer. Or, taken in the other light, if I agree to part with an acre of my land to Titius, the deed of conveyance is an evidence of my having abandoned the property, and Titius, being the only or first man acquainted with such my intention, immediately steps in and seizes the vacant possession. Thus, the consent expressed by the conveyance gives Titius a good right against me, and possession or occupancy confirms that right against all the world besides. The most universal and effectual way of abandoning property is by the death of the occupant. When, both the actual possession and intention of keeping possession ceasing, the property which is founded upon such possession and intention ought also to cease, of course. For naturally speaking, the instant a man ceases to be, he ceases to have any dominion. Else, if he had a right to dispose of his acquisitions one moment beyond his life, he would also have a right to direct their disposal for a million ages after him, which would be highly absurd and inconvenient. All property must therefore cease upon death, considering men as absolute individuals and unconnected with civil society. Or then, by the principles before established, the next immediate occupant would acquire a right in all that the deceased possessed. But, as under civilized governments which are calculated for the peace of mankind, such a constitution would be productive of endless disturbances. The universal law of almost every nation, which is a kind of secondary law of nature, has either given the dying person a power of continuing his property by disposing of his possessions by will, or, in case he neglects to dispose of it, or is not permitted to make any disposition at all, the municipal law of the country then steps in and declares who shall be the successor, representative, or heir of the deceased, that is, who alone shall have a right to enter upon this vacant possession in order to avoid that confusion which its becoming again common would occasion. And farther, 
in case no testament be permitted by the law or none be made and no heir can be found so qualified as the law requires still to prevent the robust title of occupancy from again taking place the doctrine of eschets is adopted in almost every country whereby the sovereign of the state and those who claim under his authority are the ultimate heirs and succeed to those inheritances to which no other title can be formed the right of inheritance or descent to the children and relations of the deceased seem to have been allowed much earlier than the right of devising by testament we are apt to conceive at first view that it has nature on its side yet we often mistake for nature what we find established by long and inveterate custom. It is certainly a wise and effectual, but clearly political establishment, since the permanent right of property vested in the ancestor himself was no natural, but merely a civil right. It is true that the transmission of one's possession to posterity has an evident tendency to make a man a good citizen and a useful member of society. It sets the passions on the side of duty and prompts a man to deserve well of the public when he is sure that the reward of his services will not die with himself, but be transmitted to those with whom he is connected by the dearest and most tender affections. Yet, reasonable as this foundation of the right of inheritance may seem, it is probable that its immediate original arose not from speculations altogether so delicate and refined, and, if not from fortuitous circumstances, at least from a plainer and more simple principle. A man's children or nearest relations are usually about him on his deathbed and are the earliest witnesses of his decease. They became, therefore, generally the next immediate occupants, till at length, in process of time, this frequent usage ripened into general law. And, therefore, also in the earliest ages, on failure of children, a man's servants, born under his roof, were allowed to be his heirs, being immediately on the spot when he died. For we find the old patriarch Abraham expressly declaring that since God had given him no seed, his steward Eliezer, one born in his house, was his heir. While property continued only for life, testaments were useless and unknown. And when it became inheritable, the inheritance was long indefeasible and the children or heirs at law were incapable of exclusion by will. Till at length it was found that so strict a rule of inheritance made heirs disobedient and headstrong, defrauded creditors of their just debts, and prevented many provident fathers from dividing or charging their estates as the exigence of their families required. This introduced, pretty generally, the right of disposing one's property, or a part of it, by testament. That is, by written or oral instructions, properly witnessed and authenticated, according to the pleasure of the deceased, which we therefore emphatically style his will. This was established in some countries much later than in others. With us in England, 
Till modern times, a man could only dispose of one-third of his movables from his wife and children, and in general, no will was permitted of lands till the reign of Henry VIII, and then only of a certain portion. For it was not till after the Restoration that the power of devising real property became so universal as at present. Wills, therefore, and testaments, rights of inheritance and successions, are all of them creatures of the civil or municipal laws and accordingly are in all respects regulated by them. Every distinct country having different ceremonies and requisites to make a testament completely valid. Neither does anything vary more than the right of inheritance under different national establishments. In England, particularly, this diversity is carried to such a length as if it had been meant to point out the power of the laws in regulating the succession to property and how futile every claim must be that has not its foundation in the positive rules of the state. In personal estates, the father may succeed to his children. In landed property, he never can be their immediate heir by any the remotest possibility. In general, only the eldest son, in some places only the youngest, in others all the sons together have a right to succeed to the inheritance. In real estates, males are preferred to females, and the eldest male will usually exclude the rest. In the division of personal estates, the females of equal degree are admitted together with the males, and no right of primogeniture is allowed. This one consideration may help to remove the scruples of well-meaning persons who set up a mistaken conscience in opposition to the rules of law. If a man disinherits his son by a will duly executed and leaves his estate to a stranger, there are many who consider this proceeding as contrary to natural justice, while others so scrupulously adhere to the supposed intention of the dead that if a will of lands be attested by only two witnesses instead of three, which the law requires, they are apt to imagine that the heir is bound in conscience to relinquish his title to the devisee. But both of them certainly proceed upon very erroneous principles, as if, on the one hand, the son had by nature a right to succeed to his father's lands, or as if, on the other hand, the owner was by nature entitled to direct the succession of his property after his own decease. Whereas the law of nature suggests that on the death of the possessor, the estate should again become common and be open to the next occupant unless otherwise ordered for the sake of civil peace by the positive law of society. The positive law of society which is with us the municipal law of England, directs it to vest in such person as the last proprietor shall by will, attended with certain requisites, appoint. And in defect of such appointment, to go to some particular person who, from the result of certain local constitutions, appears to be the heir at law. Hence it follows that where the appointment is regularly made, there cannot be a shadow of right in any one but the person appointed, and where the necessary requisites are omitted, 
the right of the heir is equally strong and built upon as solid a foundation as the right of the devisee would have been, supposing such requisites were observed. But, after all, there are some few things which, notwithstanding the general introduction and continuance of property, must still unavoidably remain in common being such wherein nothing but an usufructory property is capable of being had. And therefore, they still belong to the first occupant during the time he holds possession of them, and no longer. Such, among others, are the elements of light, air, and water, which a man may occupy by means of his windows, his gardens, his mills, and other conveniences. Such also are the generality of those animals which are said to be ferae naturae, or of a wild and untamable disposition, which any man may seize upon and keep for his own use or pleasure. All these things, so long as they remain in possession, every man has a right to enjoy without disturbance. But if once they escape from his custody, or he voluntarily abandons the use of them, they return to the common stock, and any man else has an equal right to seize and enjoy them afterwards. Again, there are other things in which a permanent property may subsist, not only as to the temporary use, but also the solid substance, and which yet would be frequently found without a proprietor had not the wisdom of the law provided a remedy to obviate this inconvenience. Such are the forests and other waste grounds which were omitted to be appropriated in the general distribution of lands. Such also are wrecks, estrays, and that species of wild animals which the arbitrary constitutions of positive law have distinguished from the rest by the well-known appellation of game. With regard to these and some others, as disturbances and quarrels would frequently arise among individuals, contending about the acquisition of this species of property by first occupancy, the law has therefore wisely caught up the root of dissension by vesting the things themselves in the sovereign of the state, else in his representatives appointed and authorized by him, being usually the lords of manners. And thus, the legislature of England has universally promoted the grand ends of civil society, the peace and security of individuals, by steadily pursuing that wise and orderly maxim of assigning to everything capable of ownership a legal and determinate owner. End of chapter 1, part 2